Good afternoon, everybody. I'm Dr. James Brooks, Melanie Trent de Shutter Library Director here at the Virginia Museum of History and Culture, and I'm delighted to welcome you to today's noontime lecture. The VMHC acknowledges the Powhatan Confederacy and the Monacan Nation that inhabited the land where the museum now stands. We seek to honor that history and to maintain thoughtful relationships with those indigenous people and all the tribes of Virginia. Their story is integral to Virginia's past, its present, and its future. We also wish to acknowledge the generosity of former trustee Anne Worrell, who endowed this lecture series in honor of our former president and CEO, Dr. Charles Bryan. So before we uh, make a start with today's lecture, I just wanna run through a couple of upcoming events here at the museum. So immediately following today's lecture, our ongoing cafe series, which highlights producers and makers from around the Commonwealth, is gonna to continue. Today, we welcome Neil Duffy, who's owner of the well-known two and a half Irishman traditional baking company. So please stop by and learn more about this family of Irish bakers and get to sample their delicious breads and scones. Our next lecture, which is gonna be held in person here in the Robbins Forum, will take place on Thursday, the 27th of July at 6 p.m. So that's an evening one. Dr. Jim Broomhall of Shepherd University will be here speaking about his latest research project, which explores battlefield souvenirs and relics and the making of Civil War memory. And coming up in August on the 5th at 6 p.m., Brouhaha is back. So bring your friends for an evening of live music, food trucks, and Virginia craft beer on the museum's front lawn along Arthur Ashe Boulevard. And now to the moon we go. So. Project Apollo ranks among the most bold and challenging undertakings of the 20th century. Within less than a decade, the United States leapt from suborbital flight or spaceflight to landing human beings on the moon and returning them safely back to Earth. Hundreds of thousands of people helped make these missions possible, while billions more around the globe followed the flights. The material legacy of these missions is immense, with thousands of artifacts from rocket engines to spacesuits to ephemera of life aboard a spacecraft, all represented in the Smithsonian's vast collections. Now, more than 50 years after the last lunar landing, we're in for a reassessment of the history of the project through the most evocative objects of the space age. More than space hardware alone, the objects featured reflect the deep interconnection between Project Apollo and broader developments in American society and politics. Dr. Teasel Muir Harmony is a historian of spaceflight and the curator of the Apollo collection at the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum. Her research focuses on the exploration of the moon from debates about lunar governance to the use of spaceflight as soft power. The topic of her award-winning book, Operation Moonglow, A Political History of Project Apollo, which was published in 2020. In addition to her work at the Smithsonian, Dr. Mior Harmony co-organizes the Space Policy and History Forum and teaches at Georgetown University. She serves as an advisor to the television series, Apollo's Moonshot, and her first book, Apollo to the Moon, A History in 50 Objects, was published in 2018 and forms the basis of today's lecture. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Neil Harmony.
Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, thank you so much for coming. It's a true pleasure to be here, uh, especially on the anniversary of the first lunar landing. So this, this talk is perfectly timed uh, for this topic. And I, I always think anniversaries um, are a great opportunity to, to look back on a, at an event um, and to register its significance at the time and then also its relevance to today. And so uh, in the lecture this afternoon, um, we'll be exploring the history of the Apollo program through uh, artifacts, uh, through objects that really played a, a key role within that history um, and thinking about its, its relevance to our lives today. So to start off, um, when we talk about the history of the space age, the space race, or the Apollo program, we often start with Sputnik, which is the Soviet Union's uh, satellite. This was the accomplishment. It was the first artificial um, satellite launched in 1957. Um, but I wanted to start here. This is a, a favorite um, artifact of mine in the Smithsonian's collection. It's the Vanguard TV3 satellite um, launched in December 1957 or um, attempted launch. Uh, so take a look at this uh, artifact. Look at these pictures. Um, any sense of how that launch went? Right. <laughs> so it's a great example of what, you know, what artifacts can reveal about history. So this launch did not go very well. Um, here's a picture from that day. Um, after the Soviet Union successfully launched Sputnik 1 and 2, the U.S. tried to race ahead um, to compete and launch their own satellite. Um, it ended in uh, a disaster um, on the launch pad, never made it um, to orbit. The U.S. would be successful, though, um, not that long after, um, in the beginning of 1958. But this is a great um, example of part of what began the space race and this competition between the U.S. and the Soviet Union um, and how they looked to space exploration and spaceflight to demonstrate um, national technical capabilities. Um, so here's another example of uh, an object that reveals some of that competition between the Soviet Union and um, the United States. This is an example of two stamps. So um, one is from the Soviet Union, the one on the left, uh, and then one is from the U.S. on the right. Uh, both of these stamps showcase uh, early human space flights. So Yuri Gagarin's flight for the Soviet Union and um, John Glenn's flight for the United States. And if you take a look at these stamps, they really reveal how the different countries were um, uh, projecting their space programs abroad um, and domestically as well. So the ways that they were trying to um, communicate their space achievements were quite different at that time. So the Soviet stamp, this is a stamp that was produced for international audiences um, with the bright colors, um, a bit more elaborate. But what you see here is you see Gagarin looking towards the stars. You see a very stylized rocket ship. So this is not uh, a accurate representation of his spacecraft, but instead something um, from the imagination. Um, and then uh, for the American stamp, you see uh, a spacecraft that is very technically accurate. It was actually based on engineering drawings. So NASA shared the engineering drawings of the Mercury spacecraft um, with the Postal Service, and they created this stamp and released it as soon as um, John Glenn uh, achieved his successful flight uh, immediately on uh, his landing. But this is a great example of um, the different ways the countries were trying to use their space program um, to, to represent different stories and narratives um, of their own technical ability, but also um, uh, of 
the, their national image as well. So for the United States, a lot of what was produced uh, focused on sharing uh, engineering information, being very, very open about the space program, um, broadcasting both successes and failures internationally. And um, I'll talk a bit more about that in a second. So after Yuri Gagarin's successful spaceflight, this is the first um, successful human spaceflight in April 1961. Um, a week later, there was an invasion at the Bay of Pigs, um, and uh, this was a US-backed US invasion. Both of these events uh, were interpreted by President Kennedy as a huge blow to US prestige. He asked his advisors uh, to find him a space program that promises dramatic results that we can win. Um, and those are his words. So it was very important for, to him um, to find a space program in particular. He thought that was sort of the currency of the day. And he wanted one that um, was gonna have dramatic results, which was gonna capture world attention. Uh, and they advised him to send humans to the moon, land them there and return them safely to earth within the decade. Um, and Kennedy presented this um, project, Project Apollo, to Congress in uh, the end of May 1961. Uh, and as he put it, he thought that uh, space could win the hearts and minds of the world public, and it would influence um, the direction that they would take. And what he meant was alignment with either the United States or the Soviet Union. They would pursue liberal democracy or communism. And so he thought um, investing in spaceflight and Project Apollo in particular was going to be uh, essential to the US's standing in the world and um, efforts to fight the Cold War. So as mentioned earlier, Project Apollo was incredibly ambitious and complex. Um, oh, this is just a, a quick, quick, quick overview of the program so you get some familiarity with it. Uh, but there were 11 crewed missions uh, between 61 and 72, and six of these were lunar landing missions. So 12 humans walked on the moon within that period of time. 24 astronauts traveled to the area of the moon. They collected about 842 pounds of lunar samples and did a lot of other very important science as well. And um, the cost of the program was about $25 billion at the time for the whole lunar effort. Uh, today, that would be uh, closer to about $280 billion. So over 4% of the federal budget by the mid 1960s. And this was um, a major national priority um, of the Kennedy administration. Um, and uh, that the financial investment reflects that, but also um, the investment of people's time and focus does as well. And to give you a, a sense of the state of the American space program, when Kennedy uh, made this proposal, I wanted to share a picture of this artifact, Freedom 7. So this is Alan Shepard's spacecraft. Um, you can see it here. Uh, when Kennedy proposed Project Apollo, uh, Shepard's flight was uh, the entire extent of the United States' human spaceflight experience. So it was a brief suborbital flight, around 15 minutes long, uh, at the beginning of May 1961. And um, it gave Kennedy the confidence to go ahead and propose Project Apollo, uh, but a lot needed to be learned uh, before humans would reach the moon in 1969. So new spacecraft needed to be built, uh, new rocket needed to be built. We had to learn about living and working in space, so it wasn't even clear to us at that moment if humans could 
eat easily in space. Something as basic as eating food um, had to be answered. So uh, over the next few years, it was a, a major national mobilization uh, to achieve this, this um, project. So I mentioned uh, a new rocket had to be built, the, the Saturn V, which for many years was the most powerful rocket ever created. Um, the F-1 engines at, um, in the first stage of this rocket continue to be the most powerful um, engines uh, ever developed and um, successfully used. It's a multi-part um, rocket, uh, so it's three stages. And at the very tip top is where the spacecraft was and where the astronauts sat. So um, you can see here in this diagram, this is where the astronauts are in the command module. Uh, the lunar module is tucked under here. Um, and that's just up, up here at the tip, tip top. Um, so it's 363 feet tall, so taller than the, the Statue of Liberty, um, uh, 7.5 million pounds of thrust um, in the, the first stage, uh, which um, was ignited for about um, a little over two minutes, was burning about 20 tons of fuel a second. Uh, incredibly powerful. Uh, people who got to witness one of these launches um, could really feel the, their, the ground shaking. It was like, so powerful. Um, so this is um, a part of the spacecraft. This particular image is of the Columbia Command Module, and I'll focus on Apollo 11 today because this is the anniversary of Apollo 11. Uh, this is the astronauts' home for the majority of their trip to the moon. Um, uh, it's about the size of three phone booths, so 210 cubic square feet inside, relatively compact, um, but more spacious than some er earlier spacecraft. And one of the important features of the command module is that it was the part of the spacecraft that returned back to Earth, um, and it required a very advanced heat shield, which I'll, I'll speak about um, so the, the spacecraft, spacecraft is made up of a pressure shell and a, and a heat shield, had to withstand temperatures up to 5,000 degrees at re-entry. Um, and uh, that took the work of these people that you see here. Um, so this, the spacecraft has this honeycomb structure on the exterior, um, and each of the, the cells of that honeycomb are, were injected with a resin, and you can see um, the technicians injecting those individual cells with resin. So there were um, 370,000 individual uh, cells that had to be injected with resin by hand. And then it was cured, and then it was x-rayed, and um, anywhere that they noticed any imperfection, any void, um, they drilled out and fixed. And so if you, if you look really closely at that heat shield, you can see uh, the evidence of that. You see these little circles here, hopefully, um, you can spot them from the audience. These are the areas that they drilled out the imperfections in the heat shield and fixed it. And this is a great testament to uh, the level of detail and effort that went into every single aspect of this program to ensure that the astronauts would return home safely. This is the interior of this spacecraft. And um, I'll just point out that right down here at the bottom, these are the seats the astronauts sat in. Um, at launch and re-entry, they're called couches. And um, at arm's length, uh, you have the control panel and a few things to, to point out here. This is um, what's called the disky, uh, but where the input is for the Apollo guidance computer. Uh, if you needed to abort, uh, you have some controls there. So it's over 500 switches and dials. 
um, that the astronauts trained on um, for their flight. This is the lunar module. So much like the um, Saturn V rocket, multi-stage, the spacecraft is multi-stage as well. So the astronauts spent most of their time on the way to the moon in the command module. Once they were orbiting the moon, one astronaut would remain in the command module while two astronauts would go to the lunar surface and the lunar module. Now this particular one is LM2, um, it's at the Smithsonian. It was designed to fly in Earth orbital tests, but it was not needed. Um, it was used in some Earth tests, drop tests, but it still exists, thankfully. So we ha we'll have it on display uh, very shortly after our renovation. And um, it's um, mocked up here to look like the Eagle from the Apollo 11 mission as accurately as possible. Now this spacecraft is also a two-stage spacecraft. So the astronauts would have landed in the full spacecraft. Um, they would have been in the cabin up here. Um, and once they got to the lunar surface, they would have climbed down the ladder, as you can see. Um, and then once they were ready to return to Earth, they would have climbed back up and the top part of the spacecraft would have um, launched from the moon and then rejoined the command module. And then they would continue on to Earth in the command module. Um, but a few details uh, to point out here. This is um, this one important um, part of the, the lunar module is that it is a, truly a spacecraft, a, a craft designed to fly in outer space without the concerns of um, handling um, atmospheric conditions like you would see in an airplane or something like that. Um, so it can have this funny look uh, because it was designed as a true spacecraft. Um, other, other elements to note, if you can see up here, it had very, very small windows. Um, they tried to reduce the weight of this spacecraft as much as possible because more weight meant basically more fuel at launch. And so it was very important um, to make it as light as possible. And they realized that because the moon is one-sixth the Earth's gravity, we um, could land on the moon somewhat differently. So the astronauts wouldn't need seats. So they were able to save weight by getting rid of the seats. And since they were standing, they didn't need big windows like you might need in a car to see outside. You could have small windows um, and that helped reduce the weight as well. Um, another thing I wanted to point out was uh, the important contributions of um, industry to the success of the mission. So hundreds of thousands of people contributed to the Apollo program over the course of the 1960s. Over 90% of them were contractors and subcontractors. And when Kennedy was making the decision about Project Apollo initially, um, he was advised that the, the program not only would be an incredible accomplishment and demonstrate um, technical ability of the country, but that it would also showcase American industry. Um, and that was seen as um, essential to the US's position internationally as well. Um, and, and this is a great example of that. So these are some artifacts um, from Bob Foster and his family um, who worked for McDonnell Douglas, one of the, the contractors um, that worked on the space program. And um, it includes um, a bracelet that he gave his wife and um, every time there was a successful mission or, or something that he wanted to commemorate, um, he would give her a special charm. So you can see there, uh, most of them are space-related charms on that bracelet. Um, and then this is a connection to Virginia history. So the lunar orbiter, as I mentioned, 
Um, our knowledge of space exploration was limited when, when Kennedy proposed Project Apollo, and our knowledge of the moon was also quite limited. Um, and so uh, we sent spacecraft, uncrewed spacecraft to the moon um, to learn more about it before we sent the humans there. Uh, and one of those programs was the Lunar Orbiter Program based out um, at Langley, the NASA Center here in Virginia. And um, there were a handful of missions of the Orbiter Program, and it was responsible for mapping the moon. It mapped 99% of the moon um, and helped us uh, select the landing sites for um, the upcoming Apollo missions, and then also contributed important um, information to uh, lunar science as well. And this is a photograph um, taken from the first lunar orbiter. Uh, you can see the Earth in the distance, um, and it took a number of photographs of Earth, including um, the full Earth. Uh, it really wasn't until human hands took these photographs that they they resonated much more broadly um, culturally and socially. Um, so you've seen probably the, the Earthrise image and um, the blue marble. Um, those were taken by the astronauts later on. But before that, the lunar orbiter was taking um, similar types of photographs of the Earth from a great distance. So by October 1968, um, the United States was ready to start sending humans um, into space as part of the Apollo program. And there were a series of missions that built um, on each other, um, testing out the hardware um, and learning about living and working in space. So that started with Apollo 7 in October 1968. Um, and it was testing the command module in Earth orbit. Then you get to Apollo 8 with the Earthrise image, which I mentioned. This is uh, December 1968, the first time humans traveled to the moon. It was an orbital flight. Um, and then this was followed on by Apollo 9, it was pretty quick succession. Um, and this was a, a test of the lunar module um, in Earth orbit, and then followed by Apollo 10, the dress rehearsal mission uh, to Apollo 11, the first lunar landing mission in May 1969. And right ahead of the, the launch of Apollo 11, um, there was a protest uh, in Florida um, at Kennedy Space Center. Uh, and I, I like pointing this out um, with this artifact here um, from the Smithsonian. So it was a protest led by the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And it was about 500 people uh, descended on the Cape. And they really wanted to draw attention to um, inequality in the United States and the living conditions, especially of the urban poor. And um, they were there. It was led by uh, Reverend Ralph Abernathy, who had led up the um, SCLC after Martin Luther King passed away. And um, they met with Thomas Paine, who was the NASA administrator, and there was quite a bit of media there. Um, but they really wanted to communicate that, um, that they recognized the accomplishment of Apollo, but they um, were questioning the United States' priorities and um, uh, questioning how much it would cost to something as simple as feeding an astronaut versus feeding a child who didn't have enough food on Earth. So um, I like to bring this up because at the time there was quite a bit of critique domestically about national priorities and the amount of spending on the Apollo program, um, as well as the Vietnam War. And domestically, at least, um, the Apollo program um, was fully supported by less than half of uh, the US public in public opinion polls, except around the first lunar landing. Now, um, Thomas Paine responded that if 
if he could decide not to send astronauts to the moon and it would fix the problems on Earth, then he would not send them the next day. Um, but that the problems we have on Earth are much more complicated and um, that, that NASA was interested and willing to, um, to work on applying some of the lessons from the space program um, to our problems on Earth. Um, and there was uh, a lot of effort paid um, in thinking about the ways that, that space technology can improve life on Earth. Okay, so uh, the launch of Apollo 11, July 16th, 1969. The astronauts woke up very early in the morning, a little after 4 a.m. They had uh, the classic astronaut breakfast, steak and eggs. Uh, then they headed out to the launch pad. Um, we're in position around 6.30 or so. And, and then they launched that morning. This was a, an event that was witnessed by... Uh, the whole world, more or less. So um, over a million people descended on the, the Kennedy Space Center in Florida, um, and that included hundreds and thousands of journalists from all around the world, and this coverage was picked up um, internationally as well. And so you can see example of that in South Korea. Here's um, an audience watching a broadcast of the launch, and you can see similar scenes um, on every single continent people were following this flight very closely, both within the United States and outside the US as well. Um, after a few days, the astronauts reached the lunar surface. Uh, so that's 54 years ago today. Uh, this, this photograph was taken. This is the first photograph that Neil Armstrong took outside the window of the lunar module. After the, they landed, they, have a, they had a little bit of time before uh, they went out onto the lunar surface. Um, so they had some food, a little snack. Um, it's considered a meal, but it was relatively light. Uh, here's an example of, of what they ate. So bacon squares, peaches, sugar cookie cubes, coffee, and a pineapple grapefruit drink. Um, when they came back from their EVA, they would have a, a bit more substantial meal, but they were packed four meals for their, their short stay on the moon, which is roughly a day. Um, but in general, the astronauts tended not to eat all their food, uh, about 30 to 40% of what was packed for a mission. And so um, at the Smithsonian, luckily, we have a lot of space leftovers that the astronauts decided to eat. So especially the things that were less appealing. Um, but I'm surprised we have the bacon squares because those were usually the most popular uh, items on a mission. When you're in microgravity, uh, the fluids in your your body distribute um, differently, more evenly, and the, your nasal cavity can fill up with fluid, and so you don't uh, taste food as well. So it's sort of like having a cold, um, and so spicy things and salty things tend to appeal to the astronauts because they can taste them, um, and this is true today. They use a lot of hot sauce in space. Uh, but back during the Apollo era, these bacon squares were, were some of the most appealing, and, and shrimp cocktail was also appealing because it's a little bit more spicy. Um, so they had a they had a light uh, snack, and then um, and then Neil Armstrong headed out first um, to walk on the lunar surface. Um, and so he would have um, exited uh, the lunar module like this. This is actually a picture of Aldrin because Aldrin because um, Armstrong took all those photos from Apollo Eleven, so they're of they're of um, uh, Buzz Aldrin. But it, uh, right before he walked down that ladder. Uh, he would have released this bay here. And this housed um, a television camera that was broadcasting the first lunar landing to Earth. Um, so they planned ahead. They knew that it was important to include the world in this experience to broadcast these first steps um, back to Earth 
Um, so this is where that camera was located. And then he descended down that ladder. And he, um, he took his first step on the moon. So initially he stood in um, the foot pad. Oh, you can't quite see it here. But, um, and then tested out the soil, um, took that first step, and said those first famous words about one small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind. And as I mentioned, the whole world was following this flight. For the first lunar landing, um, uh, over 500 million people watched it live on television. Um, and uh, over half the world's population was watching it live on television, reading about it in the newspaper, listening to it on the radio. So this was the most participated in event in human history. And I like to point out that um, it, it was historic, not just because humans went to an, another celestial body for the first time in history, but also came together in greater numbers than ever before to experience an event together. And that is an essential part of that story. And the astronauts actually said, um, when they returned to Earth and they were in quarantine and then they saw all the coverage of all the people around the world watching the flight, uh, Buzz Aldrin said to Neil Armstrong, we missed the whole thing uh, because clearly they're having a party here on Earth. Um, and this is represented in the, um, the mission patch that the astronauts designed. So um, all the astronaut crews designed their own mission patches. For Apollo 11, uh, Michael Collins, the command module pilot, took the lead, and he decided to trace this eagle from a National Geographic bird book. Um, it's the bald eagle uh, represents the United States. They also decided to leave their names off of this emblem. So um, usually the astronauts have their last names on a patch. If you look at other patches, you'll see that. Um, they decided to leave their names off because they thought this mission represented more than the three of them, more than the hundreds of thousands of people who worked on Apollo. It really was, um, to them, a, a, an accomplishment for all humankind. And that was represented in the way they designed this mission patch. A fun detail to remind you of, of um, how new all this was and, and lunar exploration was, the shadow on the Earth is in the wrong location. So if you remember the Earthrise image, the shadow should have been on the lower part of, of Earth from this perspective of the moon, but um, you can't blame them. It had only been a few months, uh, so uh, there was still lots to learn. Uh, so how many of you uh, watched the first lunar landing? Oh, fantastic. It's a good number in this crowd. Okay. Um, and how many of you watched CBS and Walter Cronkite? Okay, it's very similar number, which really is representative of the, the uh, viewing experience back in um, 1969. So 94% of American households watched the first lunar landing. The vast majority of them watched CBS coverage. Um, and Walter Cronkite, who had covered all the missions, was a space enthusiast, um, really trained himself in understanding the space program. And CBS put... Um, an incredible amount of effort into their broadcast. It was watched even in the White House. This was where everyone tuned in. They had um, journalists stationed around the world covering uh, the audiences that were around the world. So when you watch the coverage of Apollo 11, you not only watch the astronauts on the lunar surface, you watch the crowds of people around the world watching with you. Um, so it really um, reiterated that this was a global experience that everyone was participating in 
together. Um, and uh, this lunar module model is a, is a wonderful artifact in the Smithsonian's collection. This is the one that he used in that broadcast. So this is the one that you would have seen if you watched CBS coverage of that flight. Um, so here's another image of, of Buzz Aldrin. Um, as most people know, Neil Armstrong was the first human to set foot on the moon. Buzz Aldrin has claimed a different first. Um, he's claimed that he's the first human to urinate on the moon. Um, no one's contested that, probably for a variety of reasons. Um, but unfortunately for Aldrin, his urine collection device, which uh, you can see here, uh, broke um, as he was descending that ladder. Uh, he joined Neil Armstrong on the surface about a half an hour after Armstrong had been walking on the surface. And um, so uh, he, he walked around in a wet boot. So he, his experience on the lunar surface was slightly different. I like showing this artifact, um, not only because is this a question we always get, how do you go to the bathroom in space? Um, but this is also a way that an artifact can be a silent and subtle reminder of some of the history. So if you look um, over here, uh, they're quite old now, but this is the way that an astronaut would attach themselves um, to the urine collection device. Um, and these are designed for male bodies. And it's a reminder that all the first astronauts um, were men. And it wouldn't be till the 1980s with the shuttle program that the US sent women to the moon. Oh, not to the moon. That'll happen with Artemis, to, to space in general uh, with Sally Ride. Uh, but the Artemis program's um, plan is to send uh, women to the moon in the next few years. Okay, so while they were on the lunar surface, they, they conducted some science. Um, here's an example of some of their, their tools to collect lunar samples, the solar wind experiment. This is a rock box that they used. Um, now, they um, had studied geology. All the astronauts joked that they should have master's degrees in geology, given the amount of training they did. Um, and uh, they had collected all the samples they were supposed to collect uh, on the first lunar landing. Armstrong noticed that this box still had some space in it, so he took a scoop um, that you can see uh, the, the style here, one of his tools, and he filled that up with um, lunar regolith and, and put it in this box. Um, it's known as Armstrong's packing material, and it turned out to be one of the most important samples brought back from the entire Apollo program. Um, each of the Apollo missions also had experiment packages. For Apollo 11, they had a, a smaller version because it was a smaller, a shorter stay on the moon than the later missions. Um, you can see it here. Um, and I'll just highlight uh, one of the instruments that I, I really like, which is the laser ranging retro reflector. And what happens here is that um, an observatory on Earth can um, aim a laser at it. Um, and measure the amount of time that it takes the laser to reach the moon and then return back to Earth. This was first done by the Lick Observatory. It takes about two and a half seconds. What it can do is it can tell us more precisely um, the distance between the Earth and the moon and how quickly the moon is receding from the Earth over time. And um, for the 50th anniversary of Apollo, it was actually used again. So they're sitting on the lunar surface um, and you can still use them um, to learn about the moon. Um, so they rejoined after their, their uh, two and a half hours and longer stay on the moon. They rejoined Mike Collins in the command module orbiting the moon. Then they returned back to Earth. Um, and um, 
the uh, Columbia command module entered the Earth's atmosphere. And thanks to an elaborate system of parachutes, they were able to land safely. This is an important part of Kennedy's mission was returning the astronauts safely back to Earth. Um, and these parachutes uh, played an important role in that. Um, some early parachutes they learned um, were issued. There's a problem called squidding, which you might be able to imagine what that is, is when a parachute opens um, in the upper atmosphere, um, they can look like a squid because the air doesn't fill them out um, in the same way, doesn't create that umbrella shape. Uh, and so in order to solve that for Project Apollo, they had um, a series of small drogue chutes that were initially um, released. And then they had a series of the main chutes um, that were uh, made with what they called ribbons. Um, so basically it allowed for a lot of holes um, in the parachute um, to help stabilize the spacecraft at re-entry. It was still a rough landing though. <laughs> it slowed the spacecraft down to about 20 miles per hour and they would hit the, the surface around between, so I think 12 and 30 or so Gs, depending on the, the waves um, uh, and, and the parachutes at re-entry, but it got them on, all home safely and it was in part, part of the important system for the returning to earth safely. Um, so after the Apollo 11 astronauts landed back on Earth. Um, they were in quarantine for uh, a few weeks to ensure that they didn't bring, bring back any moon germs. And then President Nixon asked them to go on a world tour uh, to represent the United States. And as I mentioned, this was an important part of the Apollo program. Kennedy initially proposed Project Apollo with the larger Cold War context in mind and the ways that spaceflight would contribute to the United States' geopolitical position. So sending the astronauts on a world tour was, was part of this larger mission. And this is a, a wonderful artifact um, from when the astronauts visited Australia. So they did this global tour over 20 countries. Um, they were given gifts in all the locations they went to and they gave gifts back as well. And when they were in Australia, Mike Collins was given this boomerang, um, which was uh, an artifact in the history of Australian flight, is what the plaque says. It also happened to be his birthday. He kept it and then fortunately donated it to the Air and Space Museum. But another example of the ways that um, artifacts connect people. So um, the astronauts were connected to Australia through the exchange of this gift, um, but then we can also be connected um, to that history today. Uh, which brings me to this. This is the, the last artifact that I'll talk about, and it is one of my favorite at the Smithsonian. Um, so this is a pieces from the Wright Flyers, um, the Wright Brothers Wright Flyer airplane, which achieved the first powered airplane flight in 1903, in December 1903. So what happened was Neil Armstrong um, worked with uh, a museum in Ohio to decide to bring these pieces of the Wright Brothers airplane with him to the moon. So each of the astronauts was given a personal preference kit. Usually they filled them with family photos, mementos, things like that. Armstrong decided to take these pieces of the Wright Flyer with him um, to the moon. And that gesture really connects those two moments in flight history in an incredible way. It's a great demonstration of the ways that objects can connect us to the past. So he connected his mission, the first lunar landing, to the Wright brothers' achievement of that first flight in 1903. Um, and then today we can, we can look at this, we can appreciate it, and we can be connected to those missions as, as well 
through these artifacts. And um, as a curator, I often think about how artifacts are essential connections to the past. They teach us about this history, but they also give us a very tangible connection so that these um, historic moments aren't just something in our mind, but it becomes part of our present as well. Um, so speaking of the present, uh, this is an image of the Lunar South Pole. This is the destination of many upcoming lunar exploration uh, missions. So there's a lot of activity, a lot of interest in the moon today. Um, we can talk about that in the question and answer period if you like, uh, but I'll end there and I'll take any questions you have. Thank you so much for your attention. Thank you very much. Uh, a reminiscence and, and a question. I was a summer camp counselor up in the Shenandoah Valley on July 20th, 1969. It was a Sunday, as uh, many of you may recall. It's a Sunday evening, Sunday night, and we got all the boys into the dining hall to watch. Uh, there was just one TV. There was, this was before cable TV, of course. And somehow, I guess we got some kind of signal from one of the stations in the nearby cities. And... Um, but the thing I recall is that it dragged on and on, and the boys were falling asleep, their heads down on the ta tables. And when it finally, when the landing finally occurred, it was, at least in my experience, it was very anticlimactic and a great relief that we were able to get the boys up into bed by midnight. Uh, and that was not something that they were used to doing, though many of them wilted along the way. Um, question, uh, unrelated to that, um, I'm sure that many people in the, in the room know that there have been uh, people who've questioned the whole uh, validity of the landing on the moon and felt that perhaps it was a staged in a sound stage in Hollywood. How soon after the actual landing did that uh, questioning of the whole thing uh, occur? There's been skepticism all along in the, in the same way that there are, there are always questions and conspiracy theories. It's, um, uh, the the percentage of people in polling that um, that question the lunar landing uh, tend to be it's a it's a certain percentage of the population I think it's usually between maybe around eight percent um, pretty consistent uh, but but for many years it's it's um it's not a recent phenomenon it's um, something that was questioned a long time ago and it it often aligns with other types of skepticism um, I. I do get asked about it sometimes, but usually I get asked, what do you say to people who don't believe it? But I have not met yet many people who don't believe that the first lunar landing or all the lunar landings happen. Um, some of the, the answers that I like are, um, if they made it up, why would they have gone back multiple times? <laughs> why keep going? Um, especially because um, in the United States, at least, interest in the lunar landings really dropped off after 11 and especially after Apollo 12. People got re-engaged with Apollo 13 because it was um, there was a horrible accident on the way to the moon, and, and people wanted um, to make sure those astronauts would be safe. But um, many of the later missions uh, didn't draw the same level of attention, and the question is, why would you keep on doing it uh, if it was all made up? Uh, another sort of response that I like um, 
is that this is an incredibly complex program, $25 billion at the time, hundreds of thousands of people uh, were part of it. It would have been extraordinary to be able to coordinate that as um, a dupe. Uh, you know, it, it's almost as extraordinary as study humans to the moon. Uh, to be able to, to fake something like that would have been a remarkable achievement. Um, there, are, there are lots of things you can say, but usually that kind of skepticism um, is not looking for facts. <laughs> but, <laughs> but thank you also for sharing that memory. Uh, when, with Apollo 11, how much of the lunar module that returned to the command module, if any, came back to Earth? Or did it stay in orbit? So the lunar module um, did not come back to Earth. They jettisoned it um, shortly after they returned to the command module. So the, the bottom part of the lunar module stayed on the lunar surface. And we actually have wonderful photographs of uh, all of the lunar module uh, descent stages taken um, by the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter. So we, we've seen these sites um, from lunar orbit. Uh, they're wonderful pictures and I, I highly recommend checking them out. Um, but the, the top stage of the lunar module um, would have been jettisoned. Um, and uh, for the most part, most of them uh, were used in experiments um, to learn about the structure of the moon. Um, so they would have crash landed back into the moon um, and the astronauts would have set up um, instruments um, to do readings of moonquakes. So not earthquakes, moonquakes. Um, there is some question about the Apollo 11 upper stage, the ascent stage, um, and whether or not it, it actually crash landed. I know there are people investigating um, that question. The, the assumption for many years was that it did, but... Um, uh, there's some interesting evidence recently that it, it actually might be in an orbit. Um, I think you can tell from the number of people who raised our hands that we had um, watched this on TV that um, your analogy of the size of the command module to three phone booths <laughs> would work with this crowd. Do you have another one for a younger crowd? I would I would love to get one. I actually I actually borrowed that from another historian. Um, Two hundred and ten cubic feet. I don't know. Uh, I need to look one up because I I do tend not to use that one when it's a younger audience. Um, but it, it is quite compact. The astronauts, though, after experiencing the Gemini spacecraft, which was the second um, American human spaceflight program, found the Apollo command <laughs> command modules quite spacious. Uh, but it was it was still quite small. Good afternoon. Thank you for the presentation. Uh, this is more of a technical question. You mentioned that to lower the weight within the craft, they didn't have any chairs. So when they were re-entering and hitting the water, did they have harnesses? What did they use to safely protect them when they came back into to the atmosphere? Sure. So they they took the chairs out of the um, the lunar module. So they, that was only used for landing on the lunar surface. Um, but the command module had chairs, um, and they had specially designed chairs. And the spacecraft was designed to handle some of that impact. It's a great question. Um, so they're actual actually crushable ribs built into the spacecraft to help. Uh, handle some of that that uh, impact. The chairs themselves were designed to handle some of that impact. It was it was still a bit rough, um, 
but they they were able to bring the astronauts back um, pretty safely. But there were chairs in the um, in the command module, uh, and they were able to store them away for the majority of the time they were in uh, the spacecraft. So that gave them a little more space. So part of the three phone booths. <laughs> I have a bit of a personal story. I'll make it very quick. Um, I was hired as a grad, I was a graduate student at UCLA in statistics. I was hired by a subcontractor to analyze the one six earth gravity moon gravity simulations. And I was a statistician on the project. And, you know, they collected all that data with on paper tape. And then they gave me the paper tape and I brought in a timeshare system. The, the thing that's fascinating to me as I experienced that and look back is there's more computer power on our phones than they had there to do this entire mission. I'm, I'm so glad you brought up um, computing history because that's um, it's, uh, it's really tied so closely to Project Apollo. And uh, when you think about the impact of Project Apollo um, from a technical standpoint, when you think about the spinoffs when it comes to um, the incredible amount of research and development during the Apollo program and, um, and the spinoffs or the ways that it contributed to technological development. The history of computing is, is actually the area that probably was impacted the most. And so uh, before the Apollo program, computers were getting larger and larger and larger. You may remember um, uh, the Apollo program put incredible amount of resources into figuring out how to make computers smaller and smaller and smaller. And so they needed um, computers that were robust and reliable to fit on these spacecrafts to be light. Um, and this was a different direction in computing and um, a lot of investment and a lot of expertise. Um, so uh, the people that came to work on the Apollo program to work as uh, a first generation or early generation of computer, computer scientists after the program then went to seed um, a larger computer industry. And many of them moved uh, from NASA or from the contractors um, to then help contribute to um, the development of computing since that point. And so um, we often think, or we can compare the computers that they had in the Apollo program to what we have today in our pocket or on our watch. Um, and it's an important part of that legacy. They were very reliable. They were very advanced for the day. And they also made a big impact leading to our ability to have all these uh, handheld computers today. Do you know um, what changes were made to the command module after the Apollo 1 fire? Yes, so I didn't talk about Apollo 1 um, uh, just for time reasons, but it is, um, it's a very important story in the history of the Apollo program and to the success of all the later missions. And so if you're not familiar with it, um, with Apollo 1, they were doing a test on the launch pad um, there was a, a fire in the spacecraft. It had a pure oxygen environment. Unfortunately, there were three astronauts inside of the spacecraft. It was uh, consumed by flames um, almost instantaneously. They, they perished. Um, and this led to a very serious review of um, the safety of the spacecraft and in the, in the entire larger Apollo system. Uh, so a reevaluation of the program and what needed to be done to ensure that the missions would be a success and that people's lives would not be put um, at that type of uh, uh, risk again. And so um, the Apollo 1 
uh, spacecraft is referred to as the Block 1. The Apollo 11 astronauts flew the Block 2. Um, there were a number of modifications. One of them was that they, they um, no longer did the pure oxygen environment, uh, which um, uh, uh, to help with fire safety. They also, um, they had a lot of flammable materials inside the spacecraft, um, Velcro and things like that. So they limited that. They helped develop and apply beta cloth, um, which is flame resistant. Um, so uh, a lot of efforts um, uh, when it comes to that. They also, they also improved the hatch. So there was a, a really complicated system to get the hatch off the spacecraft. The astronauts wouldn't we're not able to do it in time. Um, uh, it's part of the reason that they perished. And so NASA recognized that they had to create a hatch that could be removed relatively quickly and easily by the strength of the astronauts from inside the spacecraft um, in the event of an emergency. So um, a number of modifications. And, and one of the really important legacies of Apollo 1, which was a tragedy, um, but it did contribute to um, an improved safety culture at NASA. And, and it did um, require that everyone looked at all the systems again and ensured that they were safe. And so with all the follow-on missions, uh, you had no more fatalities and um, you had one major accident with Apollo 13, but those astronauts uh, returned to Earth safely. And um, so uh, it's a tragedy, but also an incredible legacy too for that mission. In excuse me, um, in analyzing the material that we brought back from the moon, how does that compare with the substances and minerals that exist here on Earth? Did we find any new material, or did we find materials that are very similar to those on Earth? And was there any water, or water vapor, or anything like that? So one of the um, exciting findings from those lunar samples the astronauts brought back to Earth is that they're very, very similar to Earth rocks. Um, and that tells us about the formation of the moon. And so before the Apollo program, there were a number of different theories about how the moon formed. Um, but given the evidence of the rocks and how similar they are to Earth rocks in composition, it, it told us that the Earth and the moon are related. Um, and it supported the hypothesis that um, a very large planet-sized body, something similar to the size of Mars, um, collided with the Earth, and that led to um, some of the formation of the moon. Um, and so the, the evidence from the Apollo program contributed to that. Some of the, the lunar samples, they're uh, missing some of the, the volatiles. So the moon has next to no um, atmosphere, um, and it's bombarded with solar radiation. So that affects those samples in a way that um, you don't see evidenced in, in Earth samples, um, but they're very, very similar. One really um, incredible foresight that, uh, that NASA had was that these samples, some of them should be um, preserved for future scientists. There was a recognition that our instruments were going to improve over time, that we'd have better instruments perhaps in 2023 than we had in 1969. And so some of those samples um, 
more sealed and some of them have actually just recently been reopened. So there was a sample taken on Apollo 17, which was the last lunar landing mission from 1972, um, a core sample that was just recently opened at the 50th anniversary. Um, and some of the, our um, new analysis of those lunar samples has revealed traces of water and things like that. So immediately following the uh, first lunar landing, we didn't have that, that knowledge, but um, as time went on, we were able with improved instruments to see, um, to see signs of water. And one of the major reasons that um, there's an interest in the lunar south pole, which you can see here, is because there's expectation that there is water ice deposits there, which could be used for a number of different applications, one of them being uh, fuel, um, and also perhaps for astronauts um, as they live and work on the lunar surface. We have time for one more question. You were obviously not old enough to be one of us who was watching the landing live. So what um, brought you into this as a specialty? Uh, so I, I had a great interest in the history of astronomy uh, from a very young age. And, um, and that eventually actually led me to um, work at the Smithsonian after I graduated from college for a historian of astronomy there. And I was a research assistant. and. Um, I went into the archives and I started finding all these documents uh, related to the politics of spaceflight and space exploration. And in particular, it was this one folder in this one box at um, the National Archives. I had extra time for the day, so I just asked for a few extra things. And um, there were all these wonderful reports about the exhibition of John Glenn's spacecraft in Japan and the enthusiasm for spaceflight in Japan um, and the, the, the detailed reports about the hundreds of thousands of people who showed up and waited in line up to eight hours <laughs> was quite shocking to me because I have not waited in line for eight hours for anything. And, and to think about that level of interest and then the, these reports from the State Department and U.S. Information Agency talking about how that was contributing to the United States's position within Japan and how it was helping bolster the United States um, position in the world more generally, I found fascinating. And so that started uh, that started this deep dive route into um, the history of, of space exploration. And I, I ended up um, pursuing it in graduate school and doing my dissertation on the politics of the, um, especially the, the diplomacy of the Apollo program. So um, that's, that's what got me into it. I, I don't have a personal memory of uh, the missions, unfortunately, but I was lucky enough to come into this um, at a point where I've been able to meet um, many of the people involved in the program and interview them. So the Apollo 11 crew, I was able to speak with all of them and work with them and um, uh, and then also other the engineers and I've been in touch with many people who contributed to Apollo. So it's, it's very lucky timing um, that I've been able uh, to do this when I still get to meet people who remember it, whose lives were impacted by it, or who were uh, some of the contributors to these successes.